All right, so we are looking today at this passage from 1 Timothy uh, and the question of care for the poor among early Christians. And we start off with this odd phenomenon that's happened. So Christianity started off as this minuscule sect of what was itself a significantly minority religion in some random corner of the empire, worshipping a man executed as an insurrectionist. This is hardly the recipe for successful movements. And so why? Our big question before us today, why in the early in the early years did Christianity undergo an explosion of people who joined up and followed this way of life? So sociologists and historians have been doing a lot of digging into this question of why Christianity flourished in the first years. And one of the significant factors that played into the boom of Christianity was how they cared for the poor. So see, the earliest Christians had these sayings from their founder, a guy you may have heard of by the name of Jesus, uh, such as, that which you do to the least of these you do to me. Or sayings that reiterated the importance of caring for and serving others, including their physicality. So for example, Matthew 25 talks about people ultimately being sorted into bad and good on the basis of, did you feed the hungry? Did you welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick? This caring for the physical other is a huge factor contributing to this explosion in the earliest church. And note for them, this caring is not just caring for others in your tribe, other Christians, but for non-Christians as well. And so, let's take for an example, 165 AD, an infectious disease sweeps through the Roman Empire, killing about a a quarter to a third of the population over 15 years. So say you're there experiencing tons of people just dying all around you. And you, of course, go to the pagan temple to find a priest because you want to offer some sacrifices and some prayers to get the gods to to ward off this horrible sickness that's infested your community. And you get to that pagan temple, and it is empty. Because the priest figured out, and rightly so, that this disease is contagious and and passed based on contact with others. So all the powerful people who could afford to went out to the countryside to their own little patch of land to sequester themselves and wait out this disease, this epidemic, where nobody can be near me and get me sick. So you go to the temple to ask the gods for favor, for help with this disease, and nothing, nobody's there. Because the priests, as with anybody with means, got out of there, meaning a whole lot of sick people are left behind, basically being left to die. However, the early Christians had these religious tenets that we just looked at, and so for them, their faith called them to be with the sick who are dying, to care for them, to nurture them, to try and get them better or just be with them as they die. So all of a sudden, folks are looking around and like, hey, wait a second. The people who are still around helping are Christians. Those are the people who stuck around. 
And to boot, uh, so now in modern times, we've learned that these types of contagious diseases, as this one in 165, um, a rather light form of care does amazing things. Of It, it can reduce mortality by t- two-thirds. Um, and so even though all the Christians were doing were maybe giving them some f- little bit of food and water and tending to them, A, they're not being left alone to die. That's much better. And B, all of a sudden, the very people that the Christians were caring for started having a way higher survival rate. And so now people are starting to look around and be like, oh, hold on a second. This, these people who didn't ditch us, the poor, these Christians, they, not only did they not run away, but now the people that they're helping take care of are surviving this epidemic. And of course, now the early Christians, they're a small group, right? So they don't have all the resources to take care of every single person, but of course they're going to take care of all the Christians as well and then get to as many of the pagans as they can. But that also means that now Christians are surviving this epidemic at higher rates. So you've got all these social factors coming together and people start saying, you know, that's something I can get on board with, both because of the ethical aspects of it and because, hey, you might survive. So, however, note that this epidemic we're talking about, 165, it's the path from the earliest Christians until there to about 150 years later. Not a particularly smooth path. So relatively earlier on, relatively early on, there were debates about how Christians should best take care of the poor. And they were really similar to some debates we hear around society today. Uh, For example, should we take care of the poor? How much? What should it look like? And so take the church as described in Acts, for example. Um, so it describes a form of living together that, that scholars call communitarianism, the, not the same as communism, and it's a little bit different, but communitarianism in Acts, everybody puts all their assets and possessions, everybody, everybody lives communally, puts it in a pot and then helps everybody as they need, and it's this deeply relational approach to living together, to structuring a community. It's, it's rooted in trust and relationship with the other and service of the other. So now Acts is written some 50 years or so after the stuff that it narrates. So by this point, it's gotten a little embellished, shall we say? So it's a very utopian idea of what the church can be. It's a very, it's remembering the golden age of the past and in, in it's aspirational, showing the church calling the church back to what it should be in this image of what it looks like to live in community. And so we take this, this utopian, this aspirational picture of what should the church look like that we get in Acts, and then compare it to this passage we had this morning from 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy is written around 100 AD, some 70 years after Jesus died. So we're out of this first generation of Christians. We're into maybe the second or the third. Um, and this is a long time after Paul died. So we're talking about somebody writing in Paul's name, trying to continue on his tradition, even though they kind of change it to some degree in some significant ways. 
So our passage in 1 Timothy, a generation or two after that passage in Acts, right? So we're talking a generation or two later, and there's been a lot of shifts that have happened over that time. So notice what this 1 Timothy passage talks about. It's actually a very complicated passage because uh, we don't actually have all the information. It doesn't give us all the information. Uh, And in all likelihood, we're actually talking about two different things that they confusingly decided to name the same. So we're talking about widows, as in your husband has died, and widows, as in this office, this leadership position in the church. So just to clarify, so everybody's perfectly clear. All right, so all widows are widows, but not all widows are widows. All right, we good? We're clear now. Okay, I just needed to break it down, make sure everybody's on board. Okay, uh, yeah, so it's confusing, slightly. But, 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 so at least some portions of this passage are looking at basically poverty relief. You have widows. We're in a super patriarchal society so that women, with few exceptions, are part of their father's household or their husband's household. And all of a sudden, your husband dies. You no longer have a household to be a part of. And you are entirely dependent on those men to provide for you in this society. And so widows all of a sudden find themselves in a rough spot. They not only have the grief of their husband just died, But beyond that emotional aspect, they now don't have means for making money, for managing affairs, for managing household and assets, and basically for surviving. They are out dry. And so helping take care of widows specifically was an important part of the early church's ministry. It's one thing that they said, this is super important to us because in their position in society, they are up against a lot. They've been stranded without a lot of resources and we need to be able to help them. And so this passage from 1 Timothy is talking about this welfare program, this poverty relief program that the church has that is meant to supply widows with poverty assistance. And what is the tone of this piece that we read this morning? So you can read it in a couple of different ways. At least for me, I get this sense of a sneer, almost, when the, when the author is writing, we need to make sure only true widows are on this list. It, that is the list of people eligible for the program. Uh, very careful. Like, we gotta, we gotta dub, make extra sure we aren't double counting people and uh, make sure they have upstanding character and make sure that we're only helping the, the deserving poor with our assistance. Now, the more sympathetic way to read it would be I've got this program that I'm deeply invested in and caring about and we need to make sure it doesn't get run into the ground. But either way, it's oppositional, is it not? It's, we need to make sure they don't ruin our program for us, or they don't defraud us. So do you remember back in 70s or 80s or something, there was a big old kerfuffle about welfare cheats. Um, And so specifically, there was this image that was invoked a lot of the welfare queen, 
And so there's this woman, usually unmarried, with lots of kids, uh, inevitably, inevitably black, because it's a racist image that was painted. And she'd figured out how to completely cheat the welfare system and was dining on caviar and driving this Rolls Royce and living this luxurious lifestyle, all bankrolled by the government and us hardworking American audience citizens, right? Because she defrauded the government, and therefore us. And it was this really prevalent image uh, during these decades, the 70s, 80s, especially during the time period of kind of like the, the Reagan era. That was a time when it got invoked a lot in public discourse and in our discussion about poverty programs. And, uh, and, and it's been simmering in the background ever since and sometimes pops up. Um, but it, it's always been used to argue for cutting poverty relief or public assistance programs. And so, brief side note, in case you hadn't heard since, so that sociologists and historians have basically entirely debunked the idea of the welfare queen. It's taking an example of one specific con uh, woman, I guess, con woman, and adding racist and sexist stereotypes and basically using that as a poster child for all of the things that um, the politicians wanted at the time. Um, but anyway, that attitude toward welfare programs, this fundamentally distrustful sense about the poor, that poor people were just coming in and trying to cheat us out of our stuff, out of our resources, and they're just lazy and they don't want to get a job, and, and yet they demand money from us, the hardworking American citizens who are honest, and, and they just want us to pay for them to sit around and eat lobster they bought with their food stamps and, you know, we just need to crack down. We need to have strict and very temporary standards, right? Make sure nobody's cheating the system and that my hard-earned money isn't squandered. You've heard this before, yes. So take a look at this passage. Fundamentally, it seems to hold a fairly similar attitude toward the poor, does it not? It has pretty comparable values. It's like we need to go sort out so that we make sure we, we get the fake widows sorted out from the real ones. Which, by the way, can I just say, that's, if you're talking about something that's a boogeyman, I'm just saying, I'm not sure that it, smell, that it passes the smell test to say that there was a rash of widows pretending that their husbands died to come into churches to scam them out of money. I don't know. I'm, I just can't picture it personally. But... Regardless, our author comes up with this list of qualifications to sort out all the approved widows, make sure nobody's getting a free ride, right? And then, of course, what are the other attributes we have of our favorite welfare queen stereotype from the 70s, 80s, besides being black? She's lazy. She's a busybody. She gossips all day long. She wants to lounge around all day long instead of working, and now look at our list of what First Timothy talks about. Why is the author so adamant that young widows don't get put on this list? Because if they're on the list, they'll become lazy, they'll become busybodies, they'll just gossip all day, they'll just poke around in everybody's business where they don't belong. It's better that they just become good housewives and take care of their household. That would be where they really belong. Does any of this sound familiar? Right? 
both this passage about 1 Timothy and this worry about these welfare queens are an attitude, are this way of viewing a world rooted in distrust. It assumes that even though I'm a normal, good human being, everybody else is out to get us. Everybody else is out to steal our money and to cheat us and rip us off. It's an extremely distrustful way of viewing the world. It's not rooted in the generosity and the abundance and the interrelationship and the mutual reliance that are at the core of Christian ethical living. It's, it, and just contrast it to that communitarian, utopian ideal that Acts was trying to call us back toward, right? Everybody pitching in, everybody helping you take care of other people in your community, not being concerned about yourself and your own well-being because you trust that everybody else is going to do the same for you and you're going to be all right because you're in relationship, you're in community. It's fundamentally about neighborliness. It's about relationality. So in the medium term, we see that the act's posture... That, uh, that utopian communitarian posture ends up winning out over the first Timothy posture of the suspicion. Um, and so, for example, look at the early Christian care of the poor that we looked at at the beginning, right? What is that? It's fundamentally rooted in generosity and benevolence and self-giving. It's, it's rooted in not paying attention to whether or not you're going to be hurt by this and being in service to others and because that's what your Christian faith calls you to do. It's not rooted in those First Timothy ideals of suspicion and self-preservation and distrust and anti-relational behavior. So whereas uh, maybe if we think of it as a gesture, the First Timothy, the one that we read this morning, maybe that's more like a closed fist You want to hold on to what you have. Make sure nobody gets it from you. Whereas this Acts church, that this communitarian church that it's summoning us to, is maybe an open hand of generosity, of self-giving, of being in relationship with one another, of being willing to share with those around you. And this abundant, generous outlook in life became the hallmark of early Christianity. This is precisely why it exploded in over the first 300 years of its life, is because people said, this generosity, this abundance, this way that you're living, this not ditching the poor and dying, that's something I could be a part of. That's something I could sign up for. And so up until uh, the Roman Empire co-opted Christianity as a state religion, that was at the core of Christian community. This generosity that the earliest churches displayed is exactly why the church exploded, because they noticed this open hand, this generosity, this service, this neighborliness, and they wanted to be part of it. So this week, may you examine your life and your relationship with the poor, But may you also examine more broadly 
your attitude, your life way? Do you have a closed fist attitude toward life? Or do you have an open hand attitude toward life of abundance, of generosity, and other-centeredness? May you investigate that this week. May it be so.